0: you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hey, I hope you're having a good week work-wise. I hope you are doing work that you love. If you're not, stay with us. We're going to give you some principles for how you can change that state of affairs. Well, there's a whole lot of things happening in the workplace out here today. We know that unemployment is dropping, but you know, unemployment is kind of a funny statistic, really. I mean, think about it. Just look around you. Look at the things around you where people have gotten jobs or created work in the last six months that you know of. I mean, how many of those are in companies that are maybe five or 10 people, or maybe even smaller than that. How many people do you know who have just started their own business? We have a whole lot of what we call accidental entrepreneurs in today's environment. What that means, though, is there are a whole lot of people who are engaged in productive, creative, profitable work who really are under the radar, so to speak, not in an illegal way at all. It's just that the government statistics don't pick up on a whole lot of what's happening in the workplace. I mean, unemployment figures come from companies that have more than 50 employees. Now when we realize that more than half of the companies in the United States have fewer than that, I mean, way more have fewer than 50 employees it lets you know there's a whole lot of activity that isn't reported in these statistics that float around. And you know what they say about statistics. You can make them say anything you want to. So they really aren't very meaningful. There are a whole lot of people who are still recorded technically as unemployed who now have had their own business up and running for six months and are making more money than they ever did in the job. So don't be too concerned or swayed or discouraged or whatever by those unemployment figures they're kind of a a rolling number and really when it comes right down to it i mean it doesn't have much impact on what your opportunities for success are anyway we've talked about that before i mean whether we're in a recession depression high unemployment unemployment whatever uh, whoever's in the white house i mean what happens in wall street or in the white house has very little impact on your chances for success what does matter is what's happening in your house so make that your focus, see the opportunities around you and plug into the things that a whole lot of other people are discovering out here where maybe an unwelcome change was a wake-up call and now brought to life something they wanted to do anyway. Well, we're going to unpack some of the questions you, the listeners, have sent in. If you've got a question, you can go to the podcast link at 48days.com and submit your question. love to hear from you. i love to go through each week these real-life Real questions from you, the listeners, we'll share them together and look at ways we can all benefit and be more successful in whatever it is that we're doing. Here are some we're going to be discussing today. Should I try to sell a current invention or just steal the idea and make it my own? Should I take a job offer with great pay, but high stress or a low paying job with low stress? An Interesting dichotomy there. Someone says, I have a job that pays well. Should I just try to be happy with my situation, even though I'm not really happy? Dan, a friend of mine wants me to run an English tutoring school for her in Spain. Should I do it? Can a person be depressed without knowing it? That's an interesting question. Someone says, Dan, I'm 61 years old. I've been laid off from work now for about seven months. I'm dealing with age discrimination. Well, we'll talk about that. Are you really dealing with age discrimination or is it perhaps something else? Here's our quotation for the day. Brian Tracy says, invest 3% of your income in yourself, self-development in order to guarantee your future. Now, personally, I think that's a really low figure, but let's just take that as an example, invest 3% of your income in yourself. That's probably pretty good advice. I mean, so if you're, making, you know, $2,000 a month. I mean, 60 bucks a month. I mean, that's not a whole lot of money. So, as your income goes up, yeah, you know, your investment in your shell, in yourself should go up. And I tell people that if they want to start a new business, want to really develop some kind of a new idea or really if you just want to become a higher, more attractive candidate in your career line, I think you ought to be investing at least two hundred and fifty dollars a month in your own personal development. So that would include going to workshops and seminars or live events or online teleseminars, buying books, audios, videos. I mean to me that would be a pretty um a pretty minimal number. Two hundred and fifty dollars a month. If you're doing less than that, then I wonder how serious you are about really changing your own level of success and I'm not just trying to be hard on you, but, but here's, here's the deal. I mean, I, I have done that and more for years and years and years. I mean, I go to lots of seminars and workshops and I buy books. I mean, the the UPS drivers know that, you know, they're going to make a daily stop here with my Amazon books. It's rare that a day goes by that I don't get something from Amazon here. In addition to the books that, that are sent to me by publishers and other authors and so on. I mean, I, I value that. That's part of my personal development. That's part of my enrichment. Now, I don't have a bass boat. I don't golf. I don't fish. I don't bowl. I don't do a whole lot of things that guys do. And again, that, that's okay if that's what you're in. But But I happen to be very committed to and passionate about personal development. So I spend money there that perhaps... You know I could justify spending in other ways, but but I don't have a lot of other hobbies. So I, I spend it there because I think that's the most important thing for me. That's what I enjoy most too. I mean it's not just some self-righteous, you know, self-improvement path I've got. I just happen to enjoy that more. I mean I would I enjoy a new book more than I would a new fishing lure or a new golf club. But if you're serious about changing your level of success, then you also have to be serious about what are you going to do? What are you going to invest in so that you can in fact change your level of success? Well, I wrote this week about a concept that I've had a lot of questions about and it's called the adjacent possibility. That's really a term that biologist and researcher Stuart Kaufman came up with probably 20 or 30 years ago, I suppose, but it's called the adjacent possibility. It's something I've always been intrigued about and and. Really to make it simple, th- this is kind of a way to understand it. If you walk into a, a house and every door you go through just magically expands into another room with another three doors and you just keep going and going and going, you just keep opening doors You eventually realize, you know, you're in an expanding palace, but that's, that's what happens with keeping yourself open to the adjacent possibility. So let, let's say that you're working on something really diligent. You're working on a project and you've been sitting at your computer for three hours. You know, the best thing you might be able to do is to get up, go for a walk, go through the park. I mean, run out for lunch. And it's something where it changes that routine will open your eyes up to what is called the adjacent possibility. A lot of examples of that, I gave some in a blog this week. You can check it out there. But if you want to increase your creativity when you're focusing in on a major project, you may want to uh, share your best ideas with six other people. You may want to, if you're an author, you may want to give away your book as a free ebook rather than as a traditional hardback. Go for a walk with your granddaughter like I do play ball with the neighborhood kids for an hour, set your alarm clock for 90 minutes after you go to sleep, because you're really highly likely to interrupt an insightful dream. I mean, I put a lot of value on our dreams and that's a way to tap into them. You can easily tap into your dreams. Yes, you do dream. Don't tell me you don't. I run into people say, Oh, I never dream. Well, sure you do. Your brain can't function without going through those REM cycles and, having dreams. It's just that you may not remember them because you have a predictable pattern of going to sleep and waking up, but we can very easily interrupt the dream. And in the dream, you may get an insight, a solution to something that you're working on that you haven't been able to get in your best waking hours. You may want to remove the cubicle barriers in your office or turn a shower on cold and step in. I talked about that. It's kind of comes from the, the book out there floating around called the flinch. You know, jump on the treadmill for a one hour workout. I mean, that's, um, that's where I get a whole lot of my ideas is when I'm in a full sweat on a treadmill, but it's called the adjacent possibility. Keep yourself open to that. Expect it. Recognize you may be really close. You know, it's not a, a 180 degree Change in direction, the adjacent possibility when something is right there, really close. You just need to jog your brain in a little bit of a novel way so that it opens your eyes to be able to see it. Let's go to some questions. Renee from uh, St. Clair's Shore, Michigan says, Dan, a few years ago, I met a woman who developed sticky tabs that attached to a driver's license or credit card, making them easily removable from your wallet. I bought some and used them, and everybody says, What a great idea! Her website is yankatab.com. My question is an ethical one. The inventor told me she got a patent on it, but other than having a website, she's not really pushing the sales of this handy, remarkable little tab. Should I contact her and ask her if she wants me to help her in marketing them, or would it be unethical to just make my own version, call it something else, and then market my own product? I don't know if I'm crossing the line on stealing her idea, but there are lots of like products built by different companies. How to best proceed without being sued. Renee, Renee, I like your question and it's pretty easy to kind of unpack it. So to speak, what you're talking about as with most ideas, nobody makes any money until something is sold. Having a great idea doesn't put any money in anybody's pocket. Patenting an idea is worthless. Until something's sold. I mean, you can patent square wooden wheels, I suppose, but nobody's going to use them. So, having a patent doesn't mean anything. The question is, will people buy them? So, the money is made when somebody buys something. If this lady has a patent but hasn't done much to market it, you know it hasn't made her any money and it's really not worth anything unless somebody's out here actively selling it. So, yeah, you can ask her. If you can partner with her and do the marketing and you ought to get the lion's share of the profits if you're selling them. So that's one way to approach it. The other thing is with what you're describing, and I did go and look at it, a patent is really meaningless. Frankly, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it's really meaningless because I I, frankly, I don't know how you could patent it because all it is is a simple little sticky thing that attaches to a credit card where you pull it out. I mean, what, what are you patenting? on that. It's not like that's a, a novel idea or something that you couldn't duplicate really easily. So it's gotta be, uh, uh, frankly, I suspect that some, uh, scam attorney or patent company took her money to get a patent on that because I don't think the patent is worth anything. Uh, you can easily duplicate that. So I don't think it's a big ethical thing. If you decide just to do something similar to it anyway, and uh, because it's not like it's some great new mechanical invention or chemical formula, it's just like a post it note on a credit card. You could call it anything you want to. So, your real challenge is can you sell them? That's the only thing that matters in this. It's not that it's an idea that somebody else had. It, the, the question is can you sell it? If you can sell it and you want to do that, more power to it. Again, frankly, I don't think the idea has much value anyway. I think you'd have a hard time selling it if you did a really good job of it and gave it some other kind of creative name. I, I don't think it has enough value, but and I would encourage you if you're attracted to those kind of ideas, but if you're, if you know that you have the ability to sell, then hook your wagon to something that's worth selling and make your money there. I, I think this is a tough challenge, no matter how you confront this particular one. Well, Fiona from Delaware says, What would Dan do after being laid off and working contract temp jobs for the past three years? I'm suddenly offered two vastly different job opportunities. One is in a town. We just moved from great salary, intellectual challenging, but long hours away from my children, lots of stress. The other is in the new town. We moved to flexible part-time hours, low stress, but not as much money. Job one would mean uprooting the children back but a great financial cushion job two, flexible hours to spend with family, pursue my entrepreneurial activities while keeping the financial belt temporarily t- tight. Final factors are that I am a single parent and just had surprise major surgery five weeks ago. Uh, what would Dan do? Well, I'll tell you real quickly what Dan would do. What you present here, Fiona is the the typical hamburger a or hamburger B. You know what Dan would do look for hamburger C D and E what you're describing is should I take a job that's high pay and high stress or a job that's low pay and low stress? Well, guess what? Those aren't the only two options. How about a job that's low stress and high pay? Is that totally unrealistic? Not at all. And I had a lady on a, I was on a radio show recently And a lady called in and said that she was a school teacher and that she had been teaching in a Christian school where there was a a real alignment of values. The parents were supportive, everything she loved in the environment, but it was really low pay. So she took a position at another educational institution where the pay was double, but the children were disruptive and unruly. The parents were not supportive. They were acrimonious, a lot of tension you know, what should she do? Which one should she take? Should she go back to where she was or stay where she currently was in the higher paying job, but with a lot of stress. And I'm like, wow, you know, who told you those were the only two choices? Why would you not look for a job that was high pay and still an alignment of your values and passions, supportive parents, cooperative kids? Is that unreasonable? No. So in your situation, I would say, You have two choices and those are only two. come up with 10 choices, come up with 10 possibilities for things that you could do and opportunities where you would have low stress and high pay. Just don't think that's unreasonable. I mean, so often we think that the first thing that comes along is the only thing available. No, it, it ought to just alert us to what the possibilities are. So we start a search to find what really would be the best for us. Great question. Thanks for submitting it. Amy from Illinois says, Dan, I just bought your 48 days book. Enjoy your podcast. You have great ideas for those already in the workforce, but I'm a stay at home mom. What do you suggest books thoughts for someone who feels out of touch with the working world? Thanks, Amy. Now, Amy, I'm going to, from your, your question, I'm going to assume that you want to be involved in the working world. E- either way. I, well, I'll answer it two ways. If you want to be involved in the working world, don't think there's a long startup timeline here or some long learning curve to be ready to be in the workforce for or to start your own business. You can plan to be fully up to speed with everybody who's been out there working there for 20 years within 48 days. Now, one of the key principles of highly successful people is that they spend time around people who are already performing at the level at which they want to perform. That's all you have to do. So if you want to be involved in the working world and know what they're interested in and what they're reading and where they're going and what magazines are getting, just spend a little bit of time with people who are in fact out here in the working world, people that you see as successful. So you can do that really quickly. I think that's what you're asking. You know, when you say I have great ideas for those already in the workforce, if you want to be a stay at home mom and you don't have any interest in getting a job or starting a business, but you still want to just be informed I mean, that's easy to do as well. Same kind of thing. I mean, if you, in fact, want to know what's current, pick up a couple magazines like Inc or Fast Company or Wired, even things like Reader's Digest. I mean, have common stories in there about what's happening out here in the real world. I mean, just don't don't think that you're deprived or that you're somehow unplugged because you're a stay-at-home mom. I mean, that's an honorable profession, and I commend you in doing that. But if you want to be conversant, so when you're around other people, you know what's going on, just take a couple of magazines. Don't read the newspaper and watch TV. That's a horrible way to try to figure out what's really going on. But there are better ways. But, you know, if you, if you want to get engaged, if you want to really get fully engaged out here and see what opportunities are going to be good for you, either in getting a job or in starting a business, let me give you three books to read. Number one, Sig Ziggler's book, See You at the Top. Read that. That's a great broad overview of what you can do to be your best. Number two, David Schwartz's book, the old classic, The Magic of Thinking Big. Love that book. And it's been kind of a release for a lot of people to open up their eyes to what's possible and to go be their personal best. And the third one, of course, I would recommend is 48 Days to the Work You Love because it helps you look at yourself, really figure out how God has uniquely gifted you and then see what would that translate into if I did get a job or if I did start a business, how would I use my best talents and abilities, my personality traits, my values, dreams, and passions so that I can do what I was put on earth to do. So I would encourage you to use those things and you can very quickly get yourself up to speed. Well, you're listening to Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Going through questions asked by listeners like you. If you've got a question, go to the 48days.com site. Click on the podcast link. Give us your question. I'll be glad to introduce that. Consider that for an upcoming show. Well, Jose from Oregon says, I've been listening to the 48 Days Podcast for some months now. I have several questions, but I want to know what you think of Carlos Slim. I honestly, for what I've read and learned about this man, I'm totally impressed. I just learned about him three years ago since I learned about him. He's, you know, in the media, I was born in Mexico and raised most of my life here in Oregon. What's your impression of this man? What is he doing right to be such a successful man in a country like Mexico where people like my family fled away for a better future? Thank you, Dan. You inspire me to keep on dreaming, putting wheels to my goals in which I'm currently working to achieve them. Well, you 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 kind of just pose a theoretical question here, Jose, and it's a worthy one. You know how can somebody like Carlos Slim, it's Carlos Slim. Hello is his his last name is H E L U, but um he, he is now officially the richest man in the world. I mean, he's surpassed Bill Gates. He's I believe he's been the richest person in the world for like 3 or 4 years in a row. Now, so he's done some amazing things, putting together telecommunications companies, and all kinds of things. I mean, he gives away a hundred million dollars at a time, that kind of thing to worthy organizations. Has partnered with Bill and Melinda Gates for some educational things that are being done in Mexico. I mean, you know, he's accomplished a lot as a businessman. I think it just kind of points out the fact that circumstances, geography, do not determine whether or not someone is successful success is very much an internal game. So if you, uh, th- th- this is something that we, you know, we see a lot where somebody says, man, I lived in California. Then we were in Florida and then we were in Michigan. And then we were in Ohio. You know, there's just no job opportunities anywhere. You know, everything I got, I failed at, got fired. And it's like, um, is this a state uh, of the economy? Is this a bird's eye view? of the real world or are we overlooking the one common denominator in all of the things that you're describing, that being the person you see in the mirror. I mean, we we have to be realistic about that. And when you see somebody who is successful in Mexico or Guatemala or Haiti or Rwanda or Darfur, yeah, we have those stories about people who rise to the top because they have something between their own two years that cannot be stopped by dire circumstances. So th- that's why we go back to my opening recommendation that you invest in yourself. That's why you do that. You invest in yourself and circumstances around you cannot stop you from being successful. You're never going to be stopped by a downturn. You're never going to be stopped by a recession or a depression or getting fired or having your business fail. Those things aren't going to stop you because you You've got what it takes internally. You can do that. You know, read good books, develop yourself personally, read things like how to win friends and influence people. So that you're the kind of person people want to be around the kind of person people want on their team. So you develop your personal skills, develop success in seven areas of your life. Don't just look for financial success. Make sure that you are successful physically, personally, spiritually, you know, in your relationships, those are all areas that need to be developed. And if you develop success over a long period of time in all of those areas, you'll find that success just comes to you. It snowballs. It accumulates in ways that you can't stop it once it gets going. Well, Jason says from Canada, do I need to take time off from trying to improve my situation and just learn to be happy with what i have. Wow, we we we've got some really deep philosophical, theoretical, psychological, spiritual questions today. Do i need to take time off from trying to improve my situation just to learn to be happy with what i have? Man, is that a can of worms. Okay, let, let me just read the rest of Jason's question. Jason says i'm 34 years old, currently hold a position of general manager for my employer, Great pay, good job, but it seems that I'm always unhappy with my situation. I've read or listened to every self-help book out there, but I remain at my company for over 10 years now. I'm the type of person that excels in most things I do, but I've wanted to change for years and I've done nothing about it. Essentially, I'm a thousandaire that desperately wants to be a millionaire, but just seems lost in how to do that. Am I causing myself unnecessary stress should I just focus on being happy with what I have for a year and relax? Well, I'm sure this has to do with how you're wired as it does for all of us, Jason. But my encouragement is if you are unhappy and restless, you need to pay attention to it. Now, I know we're going to have Christians jumping up and down. Well, Paul said to be content, whatever situation, blah, 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 blah. Well, being content and being complacent are two quite different concepts. You can be content in terms of having joy and peace in your life. When you've just had a business crumble, you just lost your job and you don't know how you're going to pay the rent and you don't have money to feed your family tonight. You can be content in that, in terms of knowing that God is in control, being confident that there are going to be better things in the future. And being willing to put together a plan for what you're going to do to walk out of that situation. But you better not be complacent. Meaning you just throw up your hands and say, well, this is as good as it gets. I guess this is what God intended for me. I'm just going to have to suffer this, suffer this out and stay in this misery. No, that's a whole lot different than the concept of being content. So my encouragement is don't be complacent. If this is a recurring theme, pay attention to it. I mean, sometimes I wonder, you know, wh- what do we think it takes for God to get our attention to move and do something else? I mean, I, I we'd like for him just to, to show up in person at our front door and say, you know, Jason, I want you to quit this job, and this is what I want you to do in terms of starting your own business or getting another job. But You know, it usually doesn't come in that way, but it's like, like the eagles when they prepare a nest for their offspring. So they create this massive structure and they have thorn branches in there and leaves and all kinds of things fur, and it makes it real comfortable in there and the little babies are born. And then about 12 weeks out, mama dad start removing all the things in that nest that made it comfortable. So they take out the leaves and the fur and the fuzz and the shrubs and all of a sudden those thorn, branches are exposing the thorns it's not very comfortable in there anymore and then mom and dad fly by that nest with tasty morsels of food just out of reach and the little eaglets are thinking geez what's up with this you know I'm in pain and hungry doesn't mom and dad don't mom and dad care about me anymore they want me to be miserable Well, you know how that goes. They get up on the edge of the nest. They look over the edge of the nest and they look down and think, geez, if I leave this nest, I'm going to go straight down, crash on the rocks below. But eventually the pain and the discomfort get to be severe enough. And they think, well, geez, even crashing on the rocks has got to be better than this. They go over the edge of the nest. Well, you know, the rest of the story, they discover, wow, I can fly. The only way they discovered they could fly was if their current situation got uncomfortable enough that it forced them to try something new. Well, I think God often does the same thing in our own lives, not, not to make us miserable and hungry and in pain, but to encourage us to take action, to explore something new that'll take us to a higher level of success than we've ever experienced. That's how it works. So if you are restless, pay attention to it. I think it's wonderful Thomas Edison said restlessness and discontent are the first necessities of progress. I mean, only when you're unhappy or discontented will you want to you know, solve a problem, improve the situation, change something for the better. So when you're you are discontented or unhappy, don't just look for an escape or for a, a pill to make you feel better. I mean, golly, that's another can of worms that could open. I mean, how many Americans do that? They just take a pill to numb the feelings that are making them so unhappy and restless. No, pay attention, do something to change the situation rather than taking a pill. So say to yourself, you know, this discontentment is probably opening a door for me. I mean, Ralph Waldo Emerson talked about a concept that I really love. He called it the divine discontentment. Well, I think that if we ignore that subtle, a subtle sense of unrest, you know, we may be overlooking the very key to finding work in a life that we love. So no, don't ignore that. Don't just try to talk yourself out of it. Don't just tell yourself it's stupid. I I talk to a whole lot of people who feel guilty because they want to look at something else. I worked with a young gentleman this last week who's been in the same company for seven years, started right out of college. He's now being paid $170,000 plus bonuses and he's really unhappy. He's just discontented. I mean, they love him there. He's doing great work but he's just bored and just feels like this is a no brainer. He wants something more. What do you think family and friends are telling him? Are you kidding me in this environment? You're going to sabotage a job paying you that kind of money. What do you think I'm telling him? Well, no, I'm not telling him just burn a bridge and we'll figure something out. Not at all, but I'm telling him if you are continuously unhappy and frustrated, then we need to take this opportunity while you are working in a job where they love you while they are paying you well You're in the driver's seat. So you have every luxury to explore, to plan, to think, to research, talk to other people. Let's see if we can create something better than this. If we can, you can create your own transition plan. Now, if we can't, then yeah, you need to recognize work is not your total life. It's one tool for successful life. Maybe this is something you need to keep in place, be financially responsible, but frame it in a way that it doesn't consume your life. So you are building success in other areas of your life as well. But now don't ignore your unrest, your divine discontent. Those may be the very keys that are prodding you to explore your best next opportunity. Ken says, I have a question. I have a mom who's in assisted living with dementia. It's all I can do to come up with enough money. Also some funds for my sister just to pay her rent each month. It's difficult to think about the risk of attempting to start a business or head in a different direction career wise. When you feel that you simply cannot afford to fail, not at all because someone is dependent on you for money. I'm not an entrepreneur. Those skills and interest were not given to me. How would you address that? Well, again, exploring when you say that because it's a struggle for you financially that that is keeping you from looking at a different direction or thinking about starting a business. I mean, that that's true of 99% of the people out there. I mean, if we only just like the previous question, if we only looked at new opportunities when everything is perfect, I mean, most of us would never take action at all. We know the old adage, good is the enemy of the best. When things are good, we tend not to do anything. It's when there's a little thorn in our side somewhere that we decide, man, I need to check things out. I need to see if there are some better opportunities for me. So this is not a bad time, even when you're struggling financially and seems like it have no margin in your life to be looking at, what could you do? Don't get stuck in a position that is not ideal. So, Use the time that you can carve out. If it's two or three hours a week, that's okay. But carve out something where you can look at what would be a better option for you. Now, I empathize with what you're saying about having a mom who's in assisted living with dementia and you're having to come up with some of the money. I mean, I'm in that exact same position. Joanne's mom is uh, in a facility where we pay to keep her there. I'm happy that we're able to do that, but certainly I mean it, it it's always a struggle to be able to do that. But if I were struggling even more, it would prompt me to be looking for other ways to increase my income. I mean that's exactly what I would be doing. So now's a great time to be doing that. Don't let this allow you to procrastinate looking for better opportunities. So my thing would be start right now to do the exploring that you're talking about. Again, exploring does not require risk on your part. So do all your imagining, dreaming, researching, planning without burning any bridges. But then when you discover a better path, then you can create the transition plan to walk into that. Now here's, here's kind of a lengthy question, but this this is, um, I'm going to do, shortened version, but it addresses something. It, it's a real clear business principle that I want you to hear it comes from Jeff. Jeff says, I have a degree in math. I taught at high school for a couple years after college, found this was a bad fit for me. It wears me out. I'm working for a small contractor. I'm the boss's right hand man doing well, boom, boom, boom. But I'd like to have more income, more time, flexibility. I want to start my own business. Here's what Jeff says he did. I did some research on franchises, found one called Fresh Healthy Vending, which seems to be at the top of the new movement to get healthy, snack vending machines in schools and workplaces. He says, the challenge is I would need to drop about $130,000 into the business to get started with 10 machines. That's the minimum that they will allow me to get started with. That would mean a loan since I have very little capital and I imagine it would take a while to pay, pay back. The plus is the franchisor that they have people to help you place your machines, and they have a business model they teach you so you can get up and running quickly. Instead, Jeff says, "I've decided to start my own healthy snack vending company called Good to Go Healthy Vending LLC. I can get ten vending machines going on my own for less than thirty thousand dollars. So my plan right now is to bootstrap it instead of getting bank financing right away. I purchased a vending machine, and I'm trying." To now get it placed so I can start making money and save up for another the vending machine. My goal is to get at least three vending machines in place, learn what it takes to be profitable, then go to the bank for financing, quit my job, really put my energy into the business. So, uh, Jeff's question is this Should I write a business plan, get a loan from the bank, quit my job, put all my effort into the vending machine business, or do you think the cautious approach that I'm currently taking is better? Jeff, I think you're doing exactly the right way. You're doing exactly like I would encourage you to do it. Place one machine in at a time and make sure they are profitable. Now, I love the vending business. Vending is still one of the three top millionaire makers in America. Vending, I mean, just think about it. It's a way to, it's a way to create residual income meaning you put the machines out there and people can be putting money into those at 3 a.m. in the morning while you're sleeping and you go collect the money. I was attracted to vending years and years ago. When I was 18 years old, I got an $1,800 grant to go to college. I was just a, a fresh farm, poor farm kid, but I had good grades. So I got a grant. Well, being an entrepreneur, even back then, I thought, man, that 1800 bucks is sitting there just wasting time in a bank. I could do something with that, grow it and use that as seat capital and still have the original money when I need it for tuition. So that was my thinking. Sounds clear enough, right? So I responded to a little ad in the back of a magazine, just like what you're talking about here. And they were going to help me get hot cashew machines. Now, I love cashews. I still do to this day. I mean, what could be better than those hot cashews? And, of course, they promised, just like the company here is, they would come out and place those machines. Well, they did. They sent some guy out, and I think he was pretty well inebriated when he showed up, and he took me around town, Mansfield, Ohio, and put those machines in places that I would ordinarily not be allowed to go into. Now I was raised Mennonite. So we were really protected. And of course, the last thing you do is smoke, drink, or dance or go to movies. Well, he put those machines in these little sleazy beer joints because that's what his comfort level was. So he put them there. Well, to make a long story short, guess what happens to cashews under heat? If they aren't turned about every 12 hours, they mold and I got calls quickly from the proprietors of those sleazy little places saying, Hey, our drunk customers are even more unhappy when they're getting your moldy peanuts. Get these things out of here. I did hit them in a chicken coop, never told my dad about that. The $1,800 was gone. When tuition came due, I had to get out and hustle and make some money to pay the tuition. And I ended up selling those things essentially for scrap metal. Now, that being said, I love vending. That didn't turn me off to vending. I mean, one of the things that I do now that it's one of the most profitable sectors of our business is essentially electronic vending that consists of our computerized profiles. Think about how that works. It's really just electronic vending. We install the software in companies like State Farm and Nissan, you know, banking organizations, mortgage companies, lots of different churches. So we install the software they use the profiles in selecting and placing properly the people that they have in their organizations. When they need to be restocked, we don't need to back a truck up to a dock and fill it with cashews or peanuts or M&Ms and go deliver them somewhere. We restock the machine they have electronically. But what I'm describing is essentially an electronic vending business. I love it. Everything about it. So I learned from my early experiences And just went on to figure out ways to do it better. Now, Jeff, with what you're talking about, healthy vending machines, love the idea, believe in it 100%. When you talk about investing $130,000 in a franchise, yeah, I would never recommend you do that. Ultimately, it comes down to your ability to place those in locations that make sense anyway, because they can place those in locations and all of a sudden you discover out of the 10 machines, eight of them are in locations that don't have enough traffic to make them profitable. Guess who needs to place them in other locations? You do. Franchise, franchisor will tell you, well, no, we placed them. You know, now it's your responsibility. Ultimately, it's going to come down to you and very quickly sell. Your ability to place those in great locations is going to mean whether or not you're successful with vending. Having the machine, a fancy machine, healthy foods, it doesn't matter what's in them at all. What is going to be the determinant of your success is your ability, you personally. Your ability to put those in locations, that makes sense. Now, don't just sit in a cubicle somewhere thinking about how all the money you're going to make because you're going to put one in, in the entrance of Target and Walmart where they have all these, all this traffic. Absolutely not. It's not going to happen. They aren't going to let you put a machine in there. They know how valuable that space is with all the traffic they have. They control those. They own those vending machines. Nobody else is going to come in there. Well, you think I'm going to go to the local university? because they've got a lot of students, so I'm going to put one in there. No, usually vending is for a university like that, or even a major company is contracted out to a major company like Pepsi or Coke or somebody like that, where they control all the vending there. So often what you're left with are little mom and pop shops, where they can individually make a decision about having a machine in there. You're going to have to give some kind of share of the revenue back to the proprietor to have it there. And you may be looking at some place that has very minimal kind of traffic. I mean, you could say, well, gee, Dan, would you let me put a machine in your business out here at the sanctuary? Sure. Come and put one in. Oh, no. Incidentally, I have to tell you that, you know, we've only got two live events here this month. We'll have about 50 people each time here. And the fact that you have tic-tacs and have a machine that requires three quarters, you know, means that we're only going to get 1% of the people that are here. Well, you can see real quickly, that's not going to work. So vending is very much location and you need to be in the driver's seat. So experiment with one machine. And when you get in a place where it's making money, duplicate the success and the low kind of location you have there, grow it that way. And you can be very successful. In vending, worked with a guy one time, a fireman who had, you know, had some excess time because he would work like three days on, then three days off. So it was rotating time, and he couldn't take on something else would require him to be in a particular place at a particular time. So I suggested vending; it was a perfect kind of fit for him, and we explored machines. He took on vending machines that would dispense cologne. So the kind of thing you walk into a restroom and a convenience store, you put in a quarter, you push a plunger and you can choose one of three cents and you shoot it on your wrist, rib it on your neck and you walk out smelling like a million bucks. Great idea. And and the, the margins are amazing. I mean, if you are selling candy bars, you may pay 50 cents for the candy bar and sell it for 75 cents. So you've got a, a pretty slim margin. Whereas with this, somebody puts in a quarter, the cost of the product was less than a penny. So it was 25 times the cost. Plus you didn't have things that were going to spoil, get old and all that. It was a great model. He then went to, in this case, it happened to be Mapco, but a major truck stop line where they have locations all up and down the freeways. And got an agreement with them to put those in truck stops all up and down the eastern seaboard, which he did. And it was very profitable. I mean, last I talked to him, he had like 350 machines out. And he would go around about every six weeks and collect the money and restock the product. So, yeah, I love vending. But you need to do it where you place the machine. You know you're in the driver's seat. You can make it work. Okay. Let me, um, let me just grab one more here. Got a lot of questions. Let me get one more. This comes from Fred, who says, Dan, I got laid off in late December from construction. Doesn't look like it's going to be the best year for me after that. I'm wanting to change careers anyway. Around February 1st this year. Now, I don't, this may be way out of my league here. Obviously it is, but I'm going to read it anyway, and you can put it together any way you want. Fred says around February 1st this year, my sex drive went down by 95%. Blood work showed my testosterone levels are within normal ranges. I know that depression can cause lack of libido, but I don't necessarily feel depressed. Have you come across this in your experiences? Can a person be depressed without knowing it? Thanks Fred. Incidentally, he says the above name is an alias in case you read this on the air. Uh, I won't, I won't tell you his real name just as it relates to that. I read the questions in here with the names that are there. Obviously, if you want to put a phony name there, that's okay. Let me go a little bit beyond that. I use a lot of examples in blogs and in actual books that I do that come from real life situations, but I never use a real person's name in those. I modify the name and the situation so that nobody could ever be identified as, gee, that's me or that's my neighbor. I make it generic enough or change the details to throw somebody off. So don't ever worry about that. And if you have a question that's real personal here, a lot of times I don't use your real name, even when I'm reading it. So back to Fred's question, can a person be depressed without knowing it? I mean, that's, that's kind of a circular train of thinking. Depression I mean, if we really talk about depression, I mean, what is it? That's a feeling of being sad or blue or unhappy or miserable or down in the dumps. I mean, all of us are going to feel that way at one time or another for short periods. But true clinical depression really is a mood disorder. I don't think there's a clear black and white line where one day you're just discouraged and sad. The next day you're depressed. But really, if you are clinically depressed, it's a mood disordered, which, you know, those feelings of sadness or loss or anger or frustration interfere with your everyday life and you really are incapacitated. So no, I don't think you can be depressed without knowing it. Can you wake up one morning and by noon realize that you really aren't your perky, energetic, vibrant self? Well, sure. We've got that now, as it relates to a libido and a drop, I don't know how that, I really don't know how in the world you measure that your sex drive went down by 95% in, in a short period of time. I'm not sure, uh, uh, th- that has not happened to me. um, um that would be a, an unusual kind of thing. Certainly you might be looking for some kind of physical reason if that actually happened. Let's just deal with the depression thing. I think we all have those periods of time where we feel discouraged, certainly, or we feel disappointed about something or sad, or we are angry or frustrated or un, un, un you know, at unrest. That's okay. I mean, th- those are kind of things, you know, we can recognize those as realistic parts of living life, And I don't think we should run out and just get a pill or a prescription to not have us be, have those feelings anymore. I think those are realistic things to prod us, to look at things differently, to initiate change, to look at improvements we can make in our own lives. Those are good things. Those ought to prompt us to better things in our lives, not just lock us in to this is the way it's always going to be. So if you recognize it's gone beyond that, then certainly seek the services of a professional counselor, coach or psychiatrist or medical doctor something to at least give you some insight. But I mean, a lot of medical doctors will tell you that 80% of the people that come to them, you know, really are just dealing with those feelings of discouragement and unhappiness. They don't need a pill, but they insist on it, something to think that it's going to take those feelings away. But a lot of what we experience are just those real kind of gentle nudges by God, or just by the real life itself along the way to get us to look at This is an ongoing journey. I mean, success is not a destination. It is a direction. So even if we are on the road to success, there will be those times where we think we've got little obstacles there. Just pay attention to those. Those are things to help us self-correct. I mean, when you feel a vibration in the steering wheel in your car, it doesn't mean you throw the car away. It means it's need time to go in for an alignment. So you're going for an alignment or maybe some new tires. And I think it's probably a fitting metaphor for what we need to do in our own lives. Those times when those little things pop up to get our attention, change direction. Well, thanks for being part of the 48 Days family. Thanks for the questions you submit. You can shoot those in at the podcast link 48days.com. Just know that you're you're part of the, the, the real human experience here when you have these challenges in your own life. It's not unique to just you. They're things we all experience. And we'll share our triumphs and challenges and successes together as we continue to find or create work that is meaningful, fulfilling, purposeful, and profitable. Have a great week.